Heavenly Father, we um, are, I pray we are very grateful that you would choose to speak and then in your kindness and generosity have your word recorded in this book. And so might we come to it not as opinion, not as a suggestion, not like any other book that's ever existed as good as books are, not merely as any kind of page, but what it is, your living and active word, able to challenge us, able to mend us, able to inspire us, able to comfort us, pointing us to where we can be saved, able to transform our communities, and ultimately that you might be glorified. Give us a posture of humility. Give us a posture of hunger. God, as we come to your word, the thing we need most is we gather here. And this is true whether, whether you've been a Christian for three weeks, whether, whether you've been a Christian for 42 years, whether you've been gone from a church for 10 years and this is your first Sunday back, whether you are here and, God, whether someone's in this room and, and they don't yet know you, they're not even sure they showed up here today, God, what every single person needs here, whether they're close to you or far from you, is that we would leave this time more impressed with King Jesus, more convinced with what he has done, more full of hope with what he promises to do. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, in need and in humility we ask that you would lift Jesus up high, that our hearts might be drawn after him. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. It's 1947. Corey Ten Boom had left her home in, in Holland to return to, to Germany where she had previously suffered terribly in the concentration camp uh, Ravensbrück. She went back to Germany, and she did a tour amongst a number of churches with really one primary message. She's coming back to a country of, of gross national sins and individual atrocities, and she came back to this place in such need with the message of God's forgiveness. And she's in a Munich church on one evening, and she gets to a line in her message that she used often. When we confess our sins, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. After her talk, a man in a, in a gray overcoat began to approach her as he was clutching a, a brown hat. And as she retells this story, she immediately recognized him as one of her former guards from Ravensbrook. She kind of went into like a, not, not a trance, but, but it's his clothing transformed from this overcoat to the blue jacket of his uniform and his hat with a uh, skull on it. She remembered the room where she first saw him, this, this, this massive room with harsh lighting piles of women's clothing and shoes on the ground and, and the shame that she felt having to walk around naked in front of him. She remembers the form of her sister who was so thin and so gone standing next to her. Betsy and Corey Tenboom, the, the, the sisters, had been arrested for concealing, for saving Jewish people during Nazi occupation taken off to Ravensbrook. And here in a church basement in Munich, one of her guards is making his way towards her. When he gets close enough to her, he extends his hand out and says this, fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. Now, quoting 
Corey, she says this. She says, and I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me. Of course, how could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the letter crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he said. I was a guard in there. But since that time, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fräulein, will you forgive me? And he reaches his hand out again. Corey says, and I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me, it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. In this room, there are wounds and hurts and struggles and stories that may be on par to that, maybe not. But the reality is, is whenever we're in the position of being asked to forgive, it is painful. And it is costly. Wrestled with the most difficult thing ever, no doubt. No doubt. We're going to look at a text today that's going to offer a pathway and some help for, for how can we forgive. We're going to look at three things. Why we forgive, what forgiveness is and isn't, and then how to forgive. Why we forgive, what it is and isn't, and how we are actually able to forgive. If able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? This is God's holy and flawless word. Then Peter came up to him, speaking of Jesus, and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him and who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Feel free to grab a seat. 
Well, this is an easy text, eh? Um, if you're visiting Redeemer today, welcome. There's a lot of thorny issues raised in this passage, particularly in this, this parable. Some of the questions that might come up are things like this. Does God forgive us and then withdraw his forgiveness from us? Verse 34, the word for um, to hand you over to prison is actually, the, the original word is actually torturers. Does God hand us over to torturers? Is that what God is like? We could go to verse 35, and perhaps the, the biggest question, the most crucial thing to ask is God's forgiveness of us conditional upon us forgiving others? And in, in other words, does God only forgive us if we forgive others? Is the cause of God's forgiveness of us the result of us forgiving others? These are big and really important questions. A few things that might be helpful to remember as we dive into this text is we're studying parables. We, the genre of the, the text is really important. When you study parables, something we've tried to, I've tried to say throughout this series is that one of the things that we don't want to do is get our primary doctrine from parables. Parables were stories given to try to bring the truth of God's word, doctrine, write things about him and, and us before him to life. And so these stories were given. And one of the things we need to be careful about doing is pressing every single detail with a one-for-one one comparison to something about God or about ourselves. Sometimes the details of a parable are just meant to shock the hearers into actually hearing. And I think that's what's going on in this text. I'm trying to make a truth loud. That truth means something like this. God is a God who is marked by forgiveness, and so his people, too, are meant to be a people marked by forgiveness. The literal translation of verse 33 is something more like this. It, it, is it not necessary for you also to show mercy to your fellow servant as I have shown mercy to you? See, the logic of the parable, and I think most of us reading this just get a sense of that doesn't feel fair. It doesn't feel just. You were just forgiven this enormous sum, and we'll get to the sums later. And someone, yes, they owed you something, but it was so much less, shouldn't you in light of the grace that you've received, in light of the forgiveness you've received, shouldn't you forgive somebody else? If you know that you have been forgiven an enormous debt, an unpayable debt, how can you not forgive a very real but smaller debt? Verse 35 is hard-hitting on the surface, but I think what is being said is that one of the very best ways to see this is what it's testing out. If you don't forgive, then you're not forgiven. I think one of the very best ways of testing out, do you actually believe the gospel, the story of how God saves people? Do, do you actually have a relationship with Jesus who is a God of forgiveness is this question, do I forgive others? It's one of the ways of seeing it worked out. If you actually believe the gospel, if you understand that you have been forgiven, do you forgive others? Down the hill from my house are, I don't know, 10 or 12 apple trees. I see them every day, drive down the hill, it's over on the, the right-hand side, and this time of year, the, the leaves have all come in, and, and what's happening right now is the little blossoms are going to grow into fruit. So sometime late summer, early fall, the, these trees will be loaded with apples. The, the apples are not the thing that gives the tree life. 
The apples are not the thing that makes the tree healthy. The apples are the result of the tree being alive. The apples are the result of the tree being healthy. Jesus used language like this. I am the vine, you're the branches. And you're going to bear fruit. And if we have a God of forgiveness and we are united to him, then there is going to be the fruit of forgiveness flowing from our lives to some extent. There's this vibrant connection. Now, if you look at verses 28 and 30, what you see is not healthy fruit. You don't see life. You see a very bitter, a very greedy, a very angry man. This servant who is forgiven a massive sum stumbles upon or finds somebody that owes him a very real debt, and he demands payment. He doesn't just demand payment. He's choking him. The scene is just absolutely wild. And you notice the words that this servant who owed a lesser debt used is the very same ones that he had just used with the king. He says, have patience with me. A heart posture of forgiveness is not what makes someone a Christian, but it's one of the results of being a Christian. Maybe, maybe more simply, I'd just say like if you're going to take one summary statement from this text, forgiven people forgive people. Forgiven people, forgive people. You see it in the order of this text. There's a forgiveness poured out. There was a forgiveness that was meant to be redistributed. It's not that God forgives those that forgive as much as those that God forgives learn to forgive. Forgiven people, forgive people. The principle is easy. The application is really hard and really tricky and really painful. And all of us right now are bringing all of our experiences and all of our stories to it. Why does Peter ask the question he asked? So back in verse 21, he comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, how, how often am I supposed to forgive my brother who sins against me? Well, if you go a few verses earlier, you actually see the same sort of statement back in, in verse uh, 15. It says this, it says, uh, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. And what Jesus is doing in that section, if you read from the next five verses from 15 to 20, is it's this section that uh, often we reference as church discipline. Like, what do we do when we're in a church? The context of it is, okay, we're in relationship with one another, and because we're in relationship with one another, and we're all works in progress, we are gonna spin sin off into each other's life. And so what do we do when that happens? And Jesus lays out this kind of sequence to follow. He says, if somebody sins against you, then what you're gonna do is you're gonna go to them on your own, you're gonna try to keep it as private as you can, and you're gonna, you're gonna seek them out and say, this is what you've done, in the, in the hope that they will actually recognize it, change course, maybe apologize and hopefully repent. Now, if that doesn't work after some amount of time, it doesn't prescribe how many times you do that, but it says at some point when it feels like that's not getting through, then you go and you get somebody else and you go to them and you're pleading with your brother or your sister and you're saying, this is what you're doing. This is unhealthy for you. It's unwise. It's unsafe. It's damaging to us and ultimately to God. We want you to turn from this and come back. And at some point in the sequence, they don't listen again. And so then you get the whole church involved in the, the whole point of church discipline is to pull people back from foolish wandering from God and to put them back into a community. And a lot of us, when we go to this text, we use it as, what do we do when someone doesn't repent? Like, what's the end game on that? But Peter actually takes a different approach. He says, what do I do when they actually do repent? How many times do I have to keep forgiving them? If they say sorry, how many times do I have to go to that? Well, and then Peter's response, he actually, it would, it would have looked very generous at this time in this culture. He says, how about seven times? At this time, the prevailing 
wisdom or the prevailing practice of generous forgiveness was three. So he says, do I have to forgive them seven? Jesus, I mean, I'll do it seven times. And then Jesus' response is, no, not seven. And then there's two different ways to interpret this. It could be 77 times, or it could be 70 times, seven times, so 490 times, but it doesn't really matter which one, because I think what Jesus is saying is like, once you, once you forgive to the 77th time, you've probably stopped counting how many times you had to forgive them. Okay, two times, I've forgiven you five times. Hey, you only got two more before I'm done. And Jesus is saying, there's a point at which you're going to become the type of person who just flinches forgiveness. I think there's something else actually going on, though, behind Jesus' answer um, to what Peter was saying. And it goes back to the, the fourth chapter of the first book of the Bible in the book of Genesis. Genesis 4:23 through 24 says this. Lamech said to his wife, so this is the son of Cain, the first murderer in the Bible. Lamech said to his wives, Alda and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. I just find that wild. The husband's like summoning his wives, listen to me, ladies, right? And then he gives them this little, little poem. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. See, what we see at the fracture of humanity back at the beginning of Genesis is this extravagant excess of revenge. It wasn't eye for an eye. This guy struck me, so I killed him. And what we see in this text, in the kingdom of heaven, you know, notice in the text it says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's an extravagance of forgiveness. Why forgive? Why? Because forgiven people forgive. It's one of the ways that we, we live out of our identity as a forgiven people is when we forgive others that have very real debts against us, albeit smaller than ours before God. But one of the other parts of it is that, that, that we live in a culture of Genesis 4. My revenge will be 77-fold. Today, we just call it cancel culture. Now, cancer culture in some of its form is, it aligns with Christianity. The, 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 the concept is as old as is the fall, but it really came on the phrase probably about 2016. And some of it, it the, the right calling out of sin, the right calling for justice, the, the opportunity for those that have been marginalized or their voices have been muted to be able to have a voice and to call people to account. But there's some parts about cancel culture that are really toxic is that oftentimes it's, it's the, the cherry-picking of certain types of sin that we call out, and oftentimes things that we're calling sin that the Bible would call righteousness, and some things that are, the Bible would call righteous that, that, that our culture calls sin. But perhaps the worst part of it, you know what cancel culture does? It's all condemnation with no hope of forgiveness. It's all rebuke with no restoration. We see how this works out in verse 31 of this text. Other servants see what's happening. They see he was forgiven so much, and look how cruel he's being. So then they go to the king to appeal. Forgiven people forgive people for ourselves, for the transformation of our culture. So what exactly is forgiveness? Um, I'm going to cherry pick off of Sam Storms. Uh, one, he had an article, What Forgiveness Is, and 
and isn't. It's one of the most succinct summaries of kind of like five myths around forgiveness and then five things that forgiveness is. If you want a more extended treatment on forgiveness, Tim Keller, his most recent book, Forgive, just got published, I think, last year. It is a phenomenal treatment of what is a really crucial area for us to get good at, which is forgiveness. But I'll I'll reference Sam Storms here. And I'm just going to list out a few of the things that he says are myths, and then I'll just camp out in the last one because it's more of what we see in this text. But when we talk about forgiveness, I want to give you a little bit more of the broader framework around it. Um, Because these are some of the things that... uh, that we lose sight of when we talk forgiveness, and it's where we perhaps even stumble with, with wanting to, to forgive. Um, forgiveness does not mean you ignore justice. It doesn't mean you ignore justice. This is one of the ways forgiveness has been weaponized and grossly applied, particularly in the local church, as an excuse for cover-up of abuses, uh, uh, what, whatever range of abuses those are. Sometimes you forgive and you call the authorities. Both those can be held in tension, and not for personal vengeance as much as for social protection of others. So forgiveness does not mean you deny justice. It doesn't mean you make it easy to be wronged again. When you forgive somebody, it doesn't mean that you open yourself up to a relationship that that has no background. So if somebody gossips about you, you can forgive them and stop telling them personal things. I'll keep going. I want to go off on each of these. I'm going to keep moving. Um, it's not a one-time event, but a lifelong process. Oftentimes, you will find yourself, and I think this is really helpful because sometimes you can feel like this thing that I thought I forgave keeps coming back. This thing that happened 22 years ago, it keeps flooding back. I thought I forgave. You did because it's an ongoing reality. And every time it comes back, you keep going back to that well to choose to forgive again. I think one of my favorite ones that he pulls out, it is not forgive and forget. If anyone can find that in the Bible, that phrase, I would love it. I haven't been able to find it yet, but we quote it like it's biblical, forgive and forget. And I love how Sam Storms goes into it. He says, that's that's not even psychologically possible. You you don't forget it. You know, most of us don't forget it. We fixate on things. Early on in my marriage, my wife um, graciously nicknamed me the elephant. And it's because I would never forget anything. I would never forget anything. But what she was calling out is I wasn't forgiving. But when when the Bible talks about forgiving, it's saying, I might remember it, but I'm not holding it against you. Even when God himself in Jeremiah 31, 34 says, I will remember your sins no more. It's God. He doesn't forget things. He's saying, I will not hold these against you. Fifth thing, and we see this a little bit more in the text. It's not painless. And it's definitely not easy. The word patience is an important one in this text. You see it two different times. And what that word means is long-suffering. Forgiveness is a form, I think Keller says, a form of of self-selected suffering. You're willing to take the wounds and the hurt that somebody else has inflicted. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, says it like this. Everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has something to forgive. What is it? It's most simply the canceling of a debt. He forgave him the debt. But it's important to unpack this. It doesn't mean the debt just goes away. 
It means the debt is absorbed. The king was still out whatever was owed him. When he said, I forgive your debt, it wasn't like he was made whole. It wasn't like his account was refunded. There was no one else that dumped anything. The king was out the money. When he forgave the debt, he says, I will no longer make you pay back what you owe me. I will pay the cost. I will bear the cost for you. Um, A number of years ago, my wife and I were, we had some friends over, and uh, just kind of earlier on in, in our house, and our house was new, all the appliances were new, we, and so we, we have dinner, we're hosting this dinner, had a great time, and after, uh, the, one of the guys was like, hey, I would love to, to help clean up, you know, want me to help, I'll, I can load the dishwasher, I was like, no, no problem, we got it, he says, no, no, seriously, let me, let me help out, so I said, okay, so I'm doing the dishes, and I'm handing the dishes, and he's putting the dishes in, and at some point, he pulls out the, the, the rack, and he snapped off one of the wheels of our new dishwasher, which wasn't really that big of, an, big of an issue, it was when he fell on the door of the dishwasher, and hyperextended all the hinges, then it was a bigger issue, and so he looks at me, and says, oh, I'm so sorry, let me pay for it to get fixed. And I said, no, no, no. We'll, we'll, we, we got you. No problem. You're forgiven. We will take care of it. But here's the reality. For my dishwasher, either I have to live with a broken dishwasher or I have to pay to get the dishwasher fixed. That's always what forgiveness takes. Somebody is always going to bear the cost. Keller in his book on forgiveness says it like this. He says, to forgive is to cancel the debt by paying it or absorbing it yourself. Someone always pays the debt. When you are sinned against, you lose something. Whether it's happiness, reputation, peace of mind, a relationship, an opportunity, or something else. But in all situations, when wrong is done, there is always a debt. And there is no way to deal with it without suffering. Either you make the perpetrator suffer for it, or you forgive and suffer for it yourself. Either you make the debtor pay by hurting them until you feel things are even, amen, anyone? Or you pay by forgiving and absorbing the pain yourself. What makes this text even harder is what verse 35 says where forgiveness is supposed to come from. It says from the heart. From the heart. We'll get to, in a minute, how we can nurture that more. But there's an insight from Keller in his book, Forgive, who I think got it from a guy named David Pallison that is really important to hear before we move on, to forgive from the heart. Keller says it like this. He says, forgiveness is granted often a good while before it's felt, not felt before it's granted. It is a promise to not exact the price of sin from the person who hurts you. It is likely that you have always thought, well, I have to feel it before I grant it. I have to start feeling less angry before I start to not hold them liable. If you wait to fill it before you grant it, you'll never grant it. He talks about that it's a promise that then works out in a process. It's a promise to say, I will not hold the very real sin that you did to me against you. I will not hold the very real hurt that you did to me against you. I will choose to cancel the debt. I will absorb the debt, whatever the cost was. And then in this process, I will go back and I will dig deep on that promise again and again and again. Dan Hamilton says it like this. He says, forgiveness can be like buying an expensive gift for someone on credit. The gift is received in one moment when you say to the person, I forgive you, and enjoyed from there on. But the giver will continue to pay unseen until the full debt is satisfied. He uses the illustration 
of when his fiance broke off the engagement through a number of different scenarios. And he says, I had to make a commitment to not hold this against her, but it didn't stop that day. It continued on when she began to a relationship with somebody else and the pain that that brought. And then when she got married and then when she had a family. And each of those times, I had to keep going back to the promise that I will not hold those debts against them. Why? Forgiven people forgive people. We cancel the debt. We absorb the debt. But there's something else before we move on to the, to the how that I think is important to look at. You also need to calculate the debt. A number of years ago, it was probably five, six years ago, I, I did about a year of, of counseling, really regular counseling, which I would highly recommend to every single person that's ever existed um, it, before you need it ideally. So I would recommend it to all of you if you exist and you're a human. So I was doing a year of, of, of counseling and my counselor said something early on that I thought was just wild. He goes, Rob, you are too quick to forgive. And I was like, Jim, that feels like a weird thing to rebuke me on. And uh, <laughs> he goes, it, it, it's because you're not really being honest about what's happened. You're just ignoring it. You're stepping over it. And he goes, it's going to show up in your life. And he's right. Typically, where it would show up would be with my wife, who I would flinch bitterness with, or I'd flinch self-righteousness with, or I'd flinch pity with, as I began to, to, to pull back in the things that I thought I had forgiven, but I never really was honest about it. It, it looked like kind of a, a low-level simmer of, of ready to get angry really quickly, because there was all these hurts that happened, but I never was honest about them. So when I said, oh, I forgive, I forgive, I didn't forgive, I just ignored in this text, there's a, there's a real calculation of the debt. There, there, is a, there is a sum that had to get forgiven. The amount owed was cleared. In order to grant forgiveness, you have to be honest about what needs to be forgiven. Now, some things, in the, some things, the Bible actually uses different language. Some of it's like we just, we just overlook. The Bible says, it is your glory to overlook an offense. There are some things, very quickly, there are other things that require some real deep digging to be able to actually forgive. Forgiven people forgive people. We cancel the debts. How? Steve Covey in his book, uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, he tells this story. He's in a subway on a Sunday morning in New York City. And he sits down and he's reading a paper and people around him are reading papers. It's calm, it's quiet. Some people are even dozing off and they get to a stop and a, a dad gets on with four kids and he and he finds an empty seat, and he just sits down, and he kind of slumps into it, and he just kind of, kind of lowers his head into his hands. And his, his kids begin to, to act up quite a bit. They begin to kind of yell and fight with each other, and they're pushing each other and bumping into other passengers. And some of them were actually like hitting the paper out of people's hands, and they're yelling. And at some point, Stephen Covey says, you know, I, I, was so, I was patient beyond what I should have been. And so I finally, I tapped this man on, on the shoulder, and I said, sir, do you not understand? Do you not see that your kids kids are bothering people, can you please try and control them? And he kind of looks up and he looks at him. He says, you're, you're right. I should have paid attention. We just came from the hospital. My wife just died an hour ago. I don't really know how to handle it. My kids obviously don't know how to handle it. I'm sorry. He goes on Covey goes on, and he, and he says, suddenly I saw things differently. And because I saw differently, I felt differently. I behaved differently. My irritation vanished. 
I didn't have to worry about controlling my attitude or my behavior. My heart was filled with compassion. That's the word that's used in verse 27 where it says the king saw him as he asked, would you be patient? Would you be long-suffering with me? And he says, and he had pity. I think it's better translated, moved with compassion. It's the same word if you've been around for this study in parables. We were in Luke chapter 15 for weeks, this, this story of a father and, and, a, and a young son who comes to him and, and in effect says, Dad, I don't want you. I just want coming to me. And he takes his, his father's goods and he goes off into a distant land where he mocks how he was raised. He dishonors his dad. And the, the, the parable, the story is the dad is longing and waiting for his son to return. And finally, when he sees his son on the horizon coming back covered in filth, the text tells us he was moved with compassion. He saw his self-made infirmity, his, his self-inflicted catastrophe. And what it wasn't judgment, and it wasn't mockery, it was compassion. What moves us to forgive is to see people in their self-made messes. Just like our own. And instead of us flinching judgment, we flinch pity. We express compassion. To see someone in the bondage of sin. And see, what makes this so hard when we get to forgiveness is it's not the sin they've caused to themselves or the sin they've hurt others. It's the sin they've done to you. And those hurts are real. But forgiveness can be too. There are some stunning stories. If you go just search, you know, incredible stories of forgiveness out there. Um, one that stands out to me over many, many years actually came out of, our, out of our church. And it was, the reason it stands out so much, it's like one of the most ordinary, everyday things that a lot of us experience on a regular basis. But, it, but the way it was worked out is radically different than what most of us experience. And I do not share this in order to shame or to judge how you maybe have gone through this. I do not share this to be this is the only way of processing this, so I want to say that on the front end. But when I hear it, I go, I want to be a, I, I be a person like this one spouse. Um, it was a husband and a wife, and the husband um, had been struggling with, with sexual sin, with pornography. And even in saying that, I want to recognize in a room like this of men and women that have all sorts of struggles, and the shame that comes so quickly, oh goodness, we are all works in progress. We are all works in progress. But that one, so it gets on us in a way that makes it really hard to even talk about. And he goes to his wife and he says, honey, I'm so sorry. This is what I've done. And that's painful, right? Oh, it's painful. But here's what she did. And again, I'm not saying this is the only way to do it and this is not to judge anyone, but here's, here's what I hope. I want to learn how to say this in that moment. She looks at him and the first thing she says is, I am so sorry that sin has you. She had her own hurt, had her own pain that they processed and worked through. But I'm so sorry that sin has you. When we look out at people that have rung up debts that they cannot get out of, compassion. Love it. Dane Ortland says it about Jesus and gentle and lowly. Meek, humble, gentle. Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. 
the posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. How do you get moved with compassion? You go and get moved by the cross again and again and again. The one that came not with pointed fingers, but nail-pierced hands with arms spread wide that would welcome any that would come to him. And this is when we get into the details of the text. And we look at these different amounts that are laid out. Klein Snodgrass in his commentary, he really unpacks. He, he, he had a heyday with walking through this, this text. It was fun to read, but he talks about the talent. A talent was a measurement of weight, uh, of gold, of silver, of coffee, some sort of metal. And because it's different metals, the talent would weigh somewhere between 60 to 90 pounds. It says 10,000 talents. That'd be about 204 metric tons. Now, depending on the material, whether it was gold or silver, uh, a talent would have been equivalent to about 6,000 denarii. So we see these two talents and denarii. One servant owes a bunch of talents, one owes some denarii. Denarii, there's debate about this, but, but many people would say it's like a day's wage or a couple's days of wages. And so one talent would have been equivalent to 6,000 denarii. So the first servant's debt was 60 million denarii conservative estimate on how long that would have taken to pay back is something like 164,000 years. I saw one estimate, 250,000 years. For perspective, the annual salary of Herod the Great was 900 talents, and he owes 10,000. Another interesting detail is that there was numbers that they knew at this time that were higher than 10,000, but nobody used anything higher than 10,000 to count. It was the biggest number that we would have used in a situation. Here's what Jesus is saying. The debt is unpayable. Our debt before a holy God is unpayable. There's no paying back. There's no striving to make up. There's, there's no throwing some coins in the coffer and it gets us slightly there. It is unpayable. That's the story of the gospel, that we had a debt so large that God himself had to come and be born in Christ and then do what we were commanded and required to do and yet failed to do, and then go to a cross where he paid the debt. You talk about being long-suffering, who suffered our debt, who took the payment that we deserve, God's just judgment upon our rebellion and gave to us forgiveness and, and closed us in his righteousness. This, I mean, I don't know about you, but when we're singing, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. It's nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now I can forgive you. That's the flow. That's the movement. Forgiven people, forgive people. If you're struggling to forgive, as I struggle to forgive, I feel inadequate every week to preach. I might feel more inadequate to preach this text than any other because I struggle to forgive. I struggle to let go. I continue to remember. I continue to fix it. I continue to posture myself as if I need less grace than someone else. So I love the idea of forgiveness until I have something to forgive. But if we struggle, where we struggle, the way we fix it is not try harder, it's go to the cross again, go to the altar again, go to the altar and see the crimson love of Christ poured out upon you for all of your offenses, including this one, slowness to forgive. A struggle to be gracious. We don't forgive primarily because we are forgiving people, but because we are a forgiven people. 
which will make us a forgiving people. I saw a post on Instagram recently um, about someone's credit card getting stolen. I think it was like in their story or post. I don't remember. I'm not very good with the Instagram. Um, that's why I call it the Instagram. Uh, but someone's credit card gets stolen, and, uh, and the person who, who stole it, they, among a few things they bought, they went out to dinner. So they took someone's credit card, and they went out to dinner, and they, they rung up, a, it, was a, it was a $60 bill at dinner. They left a $4 tip. And I remember reading this going, wait, you stole someone's credit card, and you only gave a $4 tip on stolen. This isn't even your money. How greedy do you have to be to leave like a 7% tip? I'm like, this poor waiter or waitress that had to serve you, and you gave them a $4 tip on a $60 meal. How cheap can you be? In the gospel, we have been given an unlimited bank account. You cannot bankrupt God's forgiveness. We are the beneficiaries of this superabundance of His grace. And yet, sometimes we're leaving $4 tips. Forgiven people forgive people. Let me finish the scene from Ravensbrook with Corey. She's standing there. It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me, it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Harlem for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of my heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly and mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me, and as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my, my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I want you to hear, it wasn't just for him. Listen to how she ends this. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Forgiven people forgive people. And the more we do, the more we'll experience what that really means for us. Let's pray. Father, oh, there are so many ways that the evil one can take this and distort it. We do not want forgiveness weaponized here. It is a, it's a gift that you've given us for the healing of our world and the mending of our own souls. Father, in this place of grace, in this church of no condemnation in Christ, I just pray that through the work of the Spirit, 
that you would give buffer, margin, space, time. There are some very real debts represented in this room. Oh God, the ones we owe you are incalculable, but the ones that have happened to dear people in this room are still significant. And your word is not meant to come like a, like a, like a harsh hammer, but like a master surgeon ready to cut out the things that create roots of bitterness and despair. And so, God, might you come through your mercy and kindness and apply your word exactly how it's needed to each and every heart. And, and might you do this more than anything else. Might you make the forgiveness we have in Christ more real that we can say, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. Not my sin in part, but all of it. Oh, what a debt. What a debt absorbed by you, Christ, paid by you, suffered in our place that we might be forgiven. Make that truth louder than anything else. The call for us to forgive will always flow from us first being forgiven by you for the thousandth time, the 10,000th time, to the 60 millionth time, and not just 157 years and 250 years, but for eternity we will reap what Christ you have sown. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.